is July 2010. I am at a suburban movie theater in Southern California. It's a warm, breezy evening. One of those perfect summer nights where the wind has blown in off the Pacific. I'm home for my first year of college, visiting my parents. My moms and I are seated in the cushy seats of the newly built theater in our town, one of the two main commercial attractions in this sleepy suburb. We're here to see The Kids Are All Right, a film depicting the trials and tribulations of a same-sex couple with two children in L.A. Hey, hey, hey let me hit you back. Who's that? I was nobody. Just, uh, just Clay. Can I ask you something? What do you get from your relationship with Clay? What do you, what do you mean, get? Well, we just feel like he's a little untended. Do you think he's the kind of person who's going to help you grow? Hey, did you get started on those thank you notes for the birthday presents? Mom, your windshield wiping, come on. Not yet, but I will. Okay. I just think it's better to knock them out when it's fresh. Yeah, I'll do them tonight. I mean, you don't want to have to start with an apology, you know? Then it's embarrassing. Mom? I know. It's okay, honey. She got it. Let it go. Okay. I'll let it go. I mean, if it was up to you, our kids wouldn't even write thank you notes, you know. They just send out good vibes. That's not nice. <laughs> Do you believe our baby's 18? No, I can't. You're big girl. Such a big girl. Big girl. Big girl. My moms and I turn to each other in disbelief as we watch this scene, positively stunned at what we're witnessing. We sit in astonished silence at the closeness of this depiction to our lives as if the filmmakers had recorded us at the dinner table. The same banter and energy. It's one of the first times I've seen something like our family depicted on the big screen, there for all to see. In the 1990s, and later on into the 2000s and 2010s, there were in fact a number of depictions of queer families in mainstream television and film. A few were particularly impactful to me. Seeing Carol and Susan raise Ben on the TV show Friends. Watching Albert and Armand lovingly dote on their son Val in the film The Birdcage. And cheering on Jack on Will and Grace as he navigated the relationship with his biological son, Elliot, who was also being raised by a lesbian mother, played iconically by Rosie O'Donnell. Albert and Armand's relationship in The Birdcage, which debuted in 1996, is the earliest depiction of queer parenting I recall that rose to my consciousness. I saw the film way too early, not that any of the brilliant gay humor would have made any sense to me at the time. But the impression that sticks is of the beautiful normalcy of Armand raising his son Val with his lover Albert at his side. In brief, The Birdcage is an American retelling of La Cage aux Folles, a 1978 French film which was in turn based on a 1973 French play of the same name. The Birdcage, directed by legendary American director Mike Nichols and written by his legendary spouse, Elaine May, tells the story of a gay drag club owner, Armand, played by Robin Williams, whose son Val, played by Dan Futterman, enlists him to meet Val's new fiancé and her family after Val gets engaged out of the blue. The trouble is that Val's fiancé is the daughter of a socially conservative congressman and his wife, whom Val rightly suspects would never accept Val's gay dad, let alone two gay dads. 
Armand's longtime lover, Albert, played by Nathan Lane, is also a father figure to Val and the star drag performer at Armand's club. You look awful. What's wrong? Val's getting married. Don't be silly. I got a pork roast for dinner. I wanted to get filet mignons, but they're so expensive. Married? What do you mean married? You know what I mean. I don't understand. Yes, you do. No. Some girl he met at school. Oh, no. But he's just a baby. He's too young. He'll ruin his life. Listen, we've been through all that, all right? Bottom line is he's getting married no matter what we say, so the less said, the better. Val and Armand attempt to enlist Val's biological mother, played by the inimitable Christine Baranski, to come over on the night of the family's meeting so that they can play house. Christine's character is waylaid on the trip over, and drag hijinks ensue. As a child, watching this film and seeing the nonchalant and loving way in which it depicted gay people and the child of gay people, I positively beamed with pride and recognition. Though Val is 20 years old in the film, so a good 15 years older than me at the time the film premiered, I felt an instant kinship with him. Having rewatched the film many times over in adulthood, I'm now more drawn to the tenderness and love that Alberts and Val share. It's particularly palpable in Albert's ultimate act of devotion to Val, where Albert, in drag, arrives at the house to pretend to be Val's mother in order to impress upon Val's fiancé's family that Val is in fact an all-American, normal man with an eminently normal family. You know, I have such a good feeling about you people. There are not a lot of clever books on the shelves, not a lot of fancy art on the walls, just the crucifix and a lot of good, warm family feeling. Mm. Now, this is what Clinton didn't understand when he started in on school prayer and gays in the military. All <laughs> right, for you. Now, there's an idiotic issue, gays in the military. I mean, those haircuts, those uniforms, who cares? <laughs> you shouldn't be talking about things you don't know about. Val, don't patronize your mother. She's an amazingly intelligent woman. You know, I think homosexuality... Lots more ice for you. Lots more ice, Dad. One of the things that's weakening this country. Really? You know, that's what I thought until I found out Alexander the Great was a fag. Talk about gays in the military. The Birdcage's depiction of queer family is particularly transgressive to me, even 30 years on. For one, my sense is that it was more radical, less common, and less socially acceptable in the late 1980s and early 1990s for two gay men to parent a child, particularly a male child. The inaccurate and homophobic idea that gay men are sexual predators, and particularly sexual predators upon children, increased the stigma around same-sex parenting for gay men and functioned as a greater obstacle to parenting a child for two gay men. While gay women certainly faced homophobic obstacles in becoming parents, the cultural anxiety around child sexual abuse and child sexual predation is not as prevalent in the context of cultural biases and misperceptions around gay women as it is for gay men. Given this context, I am struck by the particularly radical nature of the birdcage's depiction of Armand, Albert, and Val as a family. And it's not a picture-perfect picket-fence depiction, either. Val is so anxious about what his future in-laws will think of his family that he begs Armand to kick Albert out of the house for the night and play it straight, pretending that they have a normal heterosexual family. I need your help. Not for this. You've done it before. What? Lied about who I am? 
Never. My first day at Edison Park, you remember what you told me? No. You said, if Miss Donovan asked me what my father does for a living, I should say he's a businessman. Well, you're a baby, and Miss Donovan was a small-minded idiot. And I don't want you to get hurt. It's different now. You're a man. I can still get hurt. Dad, it would mean everything to me if you would help us. It's just for one night. This is insane. What am I supposed to do? Close the club so I can pretend to be some cultural attaché? Whatever the hell that is. What do I do with Albert? I mean, how do you make Albert into a housewife? Well, you'd have to send Albert away for a few days. Are you nuts? You try sending Albert away. We'll never get him past the Keeleys. Dad, we... <laughs> we've got to get rid of a few things around here. Val's desire to hide his non-normative family arrangement, even to openly lie, stings. I feel a profound empathy for Val in his response and a recognition of my own experiences. I recall many times in my childhood, particularly after moving to California, where I would lie when asked about my parents, saying that one of my moms was my aunt. This persisted until I was a senior in high school and wasn't an isolated incident. Mike Nichols, the director of The Birdcage, and Elaine May, who wrote the adapted screenplay, show a keen tenderness and care toward Armand, Albert, and Val's relationship. Albert and Armand do not have a totally equitable relationship to Val. Albert refers to Val as Armand's son, and while the film shows Albert and Val sharing sweet and loving moments with each other, Albert is initially framed as Val's loving auntie rather than another father. Though Albert swoops in to save the day and pretends to be Val's mother in laughably unfishy drag, initially satisfying Val's desire to play normal for his in-laws, in the end, the birdcage's message is one of queer liberation and an ultimate refusal to give straight people what they want. Barbara, we're leaving now. I want you to come with us. Daddy, please. Barbara, I've made your mother cry. I'm up for re-election. We're in the middle of a scandal. I'm in the home of a gay couple who own a drag club. I realize you want to get married, but how many lives do you have to ruin to do it? <laughs> I, um, I would have, I would have really liked to have had you as my family. In an act of beautiful solidarity, when Val's biological mother shows up at the house after Armand and Albert have spent the evening with Val's in-laws playing house, and Val's conservative in-laws demand an explanation when the jig appears to be up, Val describes his family. Let me explain. Yes, please do. Explain it to all of us. Uh, I, I don't want to embarrass this lovely lady, but exactly how many mothers does your son have? What? Well, this woman has just introduced herself as Val's mother. How many mothers does Val have? Just one. <gasps> this is my mother. My father owns a nightclub downstairs. My mother is the star. What? We lied to you, Barbara and I, and everybody lied for us. These are my parents. This is my wife. And this is the lady who had Val. It's nice to meet you, Catherine. Very nice, Val. You've done a good job. Thank you. I'm very proud of him. 
Mass media depictions of same-sex parenting were few and far between when I was a child. And these depictions of queer families, while some of them thin and not particularly nuanced or flattering or loving in the way the birdcage manages to be, still impacted me deeply. I felt such strong recognition and a deep sense of connectedness and familiarity in certain of these depictions. Susan and Carol from Friends were about the same age as my mom's. I fantasized that if we lived in New York, we might live in a community where everyone accepted us and our family was utterly unremarkable. Of course, revisiting these media in adulthood has shown me that the tender, loving depiction of Susan and Carol from Friends that I remembered is far from it. For the non-Friends heads amongst us, Carol is the ex-wife of main character Ross, and Susan is her wife-slash-lover. While Susan is pregnant with Ben, her and Ross's biological child, she comes out to Ross and gets together with Susan. Ross, Carol, and Susan are all co-parenting Ben throughout the show, which causes Ross frequent angst, as he is not the biggest fan of his ex-wife's new spouse. Ross is homophobic toward both of them, and particularly toward Susan. He frequently bristles at Carol and Susan's choices in raising Ben. The fear that Ben will turn out gay somehow is palpable in Ross. Here's my boy. Here's my boy. And here's his Barbie. <laughs> What's uh? What's my boy doing with the Barbie? He picked it out at the toy store himself. He loves it. He carries it everywhere. It's like a security blanket, but with ski boots and a kicky beret. Yeah, it's, it's, it's cute. Why, why, why does he have it again? So it's got a doll, so what? Unless you're afraid he's gonna grow up to be in show business. This wouldn't have anything to do with the fact that he's been raised by two women, would it? You know what? It's fine. If you're okay with the Barbie thing, so am I. Further, the show overall flattens the entirety of Susan and Carol's personalities and existence to one quality, their sexuality. What are you doing here? I'm just visiting my good friend, Carol. Your good friend? Yeah. What's her last name? <laughs> Carol. Lesbian? Nice. I've always been fascinated by Susan in particular. She usually refuses to let Ross bait her, and she's strong-willed, fiery, and refreshingly straightforward. She also loves to poke at Ross for his homophobia which is a refreshing element of the show's fairly lesbophobic depiction of Susan and Carol. Something that struck me as a child watching the show was that, despite Ross's queasiness and unease at his co-parenting situation, the other characters rarely express anything but a benign acceptance of Susan and Carol. There are always jokes made at Carol and Susan's expense, but Ross's discomfort at the situation is always played for laughs and the other inhabitants of the show normalize Susan and Carol rearing Ben. In one notable moment, Phoebe goes to Ben's school after learning that Ben goes to school with the son of the musician Sting, of whom Phoebe is a big fan. Phoebe pretends to be Susan while she chats with Ben's teacher about the dislike between the two boys, Sting's son and Ben. While Phoebe plays up the gay bit for comedy, 
What I was struck by and remain struck by is the respectful and compassionate response from Ben's teacher. Are you with one of the students? Uh-huh, I'm with Ben. Are you one of Ben's mothers? I am one of Ben's mothers. <laughs> I'm a lesbian. It was, it was difficult coming out to my parents. <sighs> this is not to say that the show meaningfully depicted queer families in a way that we would now consider progressive or even relatively nuanced, but I am struck by how, even for the time, the show managed to endow Carol and Susan with some degree of respect and compassion. Another truly beloved depiction of queer parenting from this period comes from Jack McFarlane's role as dad to Elliot on Will and Grace, an NBC show that first aired in 1998. Jack meets his son Elliot as an adolescent after having donated sperm a decade prior. I'm Elliot. Well, what can we do for you, little man? Oh, uh, well, 13 years ago, did you donate your um, stuff to a stuff bank called the New York Family Clinic? Let's see. I think I did have an account at that bank. <laughs> well, my mom was a nurse there, and she wanted a baby real bad, so she took your donation. Um, I'm your son. <laughs> Mr. McFarland, I didn't mean to freak you out. I just wanted to meet you. Yeah, well, we don't need to meet, okay? Because I'm not your father. But you are. My mom still has your file. It says that you were a ballet dancer and model who enjoys long walks on the beach. <gasps> That's not me. <laughs> said that you were part of a performing group called Jack and the Beanstalk. That was a solo act! <laughs> Listen, Elliot, I can't do this with you, okay? I mean, a kid just does not fit into my E! True Hollywood story. But I don't want anything from you. I just thought every once in a while we could, I don't know, hang out or something. Maybe throw a ball or watch hockey or see a Jackie Chan movie. <sighs> God, what has not having a father done to you? <laughs> Elliot is being raised by his lesbian mom, played by the iconic Rosie O'Donnell, and starts spending more time with Jack. Jack, for those unfamiliar with the show, is the best friend of main character Will. He is the flaming queen to Will's more butch, semi-closeted self. Jack's role as a father is initially played for laughs, but there is a sense of pathos, tenderness, and love that the show develops throughout its seasons, as Jack and Elliot's relationship complicates, grows, and deepens. As a child, it was truly meaningful to me to see Jack being a flamboyant gay man and a parent, and to see Elliot's experience as a child being raised by a queer mother with a queer father-slash-father figure. Again, the placement of this show in New York is not lost on me, it definitely feels important that both Friends and Will and Grace are cited in large liberal coastal cultural centers, which would have been perhaps less hostile toward the idea of queer family making, even in the 1990s and early 2000s. One episode of Will and Grace stands out for me in particular, where Elliot meets a girl in his class who he is nervous to share with about having a gay dad, since he has a big crush on her. By the end of the episode, Elliot finally reveals to her that Jack, his dad, is gay, 
And his crush responds nonchalantly, oh, one of my moms is gay. The normalization of queer parenting and the depiction of a child, approximately my peer or just slightly older, navigating the challenges of being the child of queer people made an indelible impact on me. These media have stayed with me to this day, and I continue to feel much warmth toward the loving depiction of Jack's relationship with Elliot. One final and important piece of media depicting a queer family for me is The Kids Are Alright. I keep coming back to this film because it feels like 2010 was a tipping point for depictions of queer families in mass media in the West. In 2009, the television show Modern Family first aired, depicting two femme gay men married to each other with a small adopted daughter. The Fosters, an ABC family drama about two mothers raising a blended family of both foster and biological children, premiered in mid-2013. Since the 2010s, the amount of programming that depicts queer families has positively exploded, although most mainstream depictions are still fairly normative portrayals of cis, monogamous, white queers raising children whom they have adopted or are biologically related to. But these days, it's not strange or surprising to see a film or TV show with same-sex parents, so much so that it's easy to forget that this has been a very, very recent development in the scope of the past few decades. But back to The Kids Are All Right. This film tells the story of two gay moms living in L.A. raising their two children, who were donor-conceived. The two kids, both teens, find out who their sperm donor is and end up contacting him, which their moms eventually find out about. Laser, your mom and I sense that there's some other stuff going on in your life. We just want to be let in. What do you mean? Are you having a relationship with someone? You can tell us, honey. We would understand and support you. Look, I only met him once. What do you mean, once? Did he find you online? Wait. What? Wait, wait, who did you meet once? Paul, who's I met, Paul? I met him with Joni. Why was Joni there? She set it up. Forget the setup. Who's Paul? Our sperm donor. Yeah, I mean, we understand that you'd be curious about your biological father. I mean, it's completely natural. But why didn't you tell us? Because we knew you'd be upset. We're not upset. No, 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 we're not. We, just, we wish that you'd included us in the conversation. That's all, you know? But, um, but you met him, and that's cool. And now uh, we can move on. Actually, I want to see him again. You do? You do? Yeah, I was gonna tell you. Whoa, no, okay? No way. No one's seeing anyone until we meet him. The film traces the challenges that the family faces in attempting to integrate the kid's sperm donor, played by the laconic Mark Ruffalo, and navigate infidelity and identity challenges in the process. The film really stands out for me in the way that it depicts the experiences both of the two teenagers and the moms with equal care and attention. It also hits the nose on the head in capturing the quirks and intimacies of having a two-mom household, such as the kids referring to their moms as moms, as in, moms are going to be so upset about this if they find out. As I mentioned earlier, when my moms and I first saw the film, we were utterly floored at the resonance we felt with the way the film depicted this queer family. It was truly the first time I felt deeply seen and saw myself reflected back in film with regard to how my family looked. 
It didn't hurt that Joni, the sensitive, smart, artistic elder daughter, was about to head off to college in the film, and I just finished my freshman year. I felt so deeply seen by this film, and I don't think I've seen a film since, that hit home for me in quite the acute way this movie did. I think it's a combination of the content and timing. The movie came out at just the right time for me and my moms to receive it. I will say this film is not without its issues. The film essentially suggests that one of the moms is vulnerable to reverting back to being heterosexual after being seduced by a man, and reinforces the idea that all gay relationships have one femme and one butch. So the film has its shortcomings, but I do earnestly think it's an interesting piece of film depicting a very specific cultural moment and that continues to have deep resonance for me on a personal level. Zooming out a bit, political and cultural commentators often note that the LGBTQ rights movement, what began as the gay liberation movement, has effectuated an extraordinarily efficient and rapid change in the political, social, legal, and sociocultural status of queer, and to a lesser extent, trans people, over the past 50-so years. It has been 53 years since Stonewall, as of the making of this project, and the gay liberation movement has marked some spectacular successes, particularly with regard to the legal treatment of gay people's right to marry, and, to a lesser extent, legal protections for queer and trans people in the workplace. But obviously, these enormous strides have come at great cost, and the backlash to the greater political and sociocultural power and visibility of queer and trans people is acute. It is particularly deeply felt now in 2023, when lawmakers in state houses across the country are seeking to criminalize the performance of drag, conservatives are branding every queer person a groomer and a pedophile, and queer public servants are being harassed in their homes, not to mention the ongoing violence towards black and brown trans women in particular, and the disproportionate rates of homelessness and sexual violence for queer youth and queer people in general. It's hard to feel hopeful or have a sense of trust that the strides the gay liberation movement has made have not been in vain. This perceived backslide doesn't particularly surprise me, because we aren't always moving forward to our more progressive or enlightened society with the passage of time, but it still stings. It's hard not to see the great strides that have been made in the normalization of queerness in public and within art, and not feel that, despite these great strides, we still face so much violence on the basis of sexuality. In examining these depictions of queer families, I keep coming back to my deep-rooted sense that I'm having trouble articulating that queerness, and particularly membership in a queer family, is a type of inherent inversion from normativity in a way that is profoundly special and cool. The reference to the late 19th century concept of sexual inversion, or referring to queer people as, quote, inverts, unquote, which we now understand to be a confusion of the equation of biological sex with orientation, isn't lost on me in thinking about this term. Inversion, an upside-downness. The queer family inverts the normative family, turns it on its head. It says, we don't need to do this the way it's been done. We'll try it our own way. In this vein, in the next episode, I have a conversation with an incredible friend who also grew up with two moms. I'm so looking forward to you listening to our conversation that's in two parts, where we dive deep into our experiences growing up in queer families. Be sure to tune in to the next two episodes for my conversation with my dear friend, Sammy. Until next time.